me back to um, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians as we continue through this book. All sorts of interesting subjects that Paul deals with, all very practical. Uh, of course, it's written to a local church, and uh, we are seeing many of the problems that uh, local churches have always faced, and we certainly face today in trying to approach this as Paul reminds us. Um, just to kind of summarize chapter 7 to some degree, because it kind of leads us into chapter 8 by the, at the end, but we are reminded as we study some difficult subjects that uh, there is a certain amount of freedom that we enjoy as Christians. The Bible does not give us every uh, move to make, does not explain everything to us as we would sometimes like it, right? And we have been reminded that we can always look to the Bible or to others in authority to inform us of the contents of God's will specifically. Obviously, this is where we learn of God's will, but the Bible sometimes lays out principles uh, so that when we come to different things in our life, we use those principles in order to uh, know what to do. It doesn't always tell us every move to make. And that will, of course, bring us into this whole idea of Christian freedom uh, that we will begin looking at again in chapter 8. Many of us, though, like simple rules. We all like the Bible to sum everything up for us, tell us every move to make. Because we don't have to think. Right? We understand that. But the Bible doesn't always do that. The Bible gives us the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God principles from the Word of God, and we take those things, and then when we come to situations in our life, we apply the principles. One of the things Paul's going to tell us in chapter 8, you've got to apply love. You can't just take stark doctrines and push it on people. You've got to do so in a winsome way, in a way that uh, is, is helps people. And, uh, you know, this idea that, well, uh, the Bible gives us make, gives us every move to make just won't work sometimes. Uh, that sometimes there are there is freedom to choose between acceptable alternatives, and we, God does not always map out our life so that uh, we don't that we're safe from agonizing decisions. Sometimes we have to agonize over things we're not 100 sure what to do. We do the best we can according to God's word, and God will work that out. He'll bless that. And the problem, is, and we'll get into this later, is that if you think everything is in black and white, then when you see somebody doing something, making a decision you're not happy with, all of a sudden you think they're sinning. And you can become very judgmental instead of saying, well, you know what, I know they love the Lord. They're doing the best they can with what they've got, and the Lord will take care of that. And so Paul, in chapter 7, gives us both commands, but also some of his advice. Some of, some of it is, I think that in this situation, these things would be better, but each one has got to decide that for himself, and that's okay. In the final analysis, Paul calls on us to decide what we will do, and it's my opinion that when we need to decide between two morally acceptable alternatives, and listen to this, God is not so concerned with which one we choose, as he is with why we choose what we do. What's our heart's motivation? And that, I think, will lead us to chapter 8. Now, again, the 
Bible gives us a lot of clear-cut things, so I'm not saying this is uh, the norm. But quite often, we will disagree with one another, and what I always want to know is, not that you agree with me necessarily, but do you love the Lord? Are you concerned with the Lord's glory, doing the best you can? And if that's the case, I don't have to worry about you. Yeah, you don't, might not agree with me, but I know the Lord will take care of you because your motivation is right. And that, I think, is often we, we forget about that. So let me uh, kind of, we got a lot going on today. Let me just kind of move into chapter 8 then. In chapter 8, we I said this is Christian Liberty Revisited. Uh, we've talked a little bit about before, of this already in 1 Corinthians. But here he's going to spend the next three chapters dealing with how we deal with differences in the church. In chapter, in chapter 8, we'll see specifically Christian liberty defined. In chapter 9, we'll see an example or two of Christian liberty. And then in chapter 10, some applications to this. So that's how we will deal with these next three chapters. And once again, Paul moves on to another controversy in the Corinthian church and uses a phrase that some are using, but, he, but as we've seen so often now, they're using it, but they're putting a twist on it that Paul is uncomfortable with, that Paul did not do, and so he's correcting this. Let me see this in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Well, what in the world? Why are we concerned about that? Well, well, we'll deal with that in just a moment. But clearly what's happening here are there are those who feel like they know that that food, even though it's been offered to an idol, there's nothing that, that doesn't change that food. It's still meat. It's still good for you. It's acceptable to eat. They have the knowledge of that. But in a moment we'll see, well, there are some in the church who don't get it. They don't understand that. But these guys are coming along and saying, well, what's wrong with you? Don't you know that there's no such things as demons? There's no false gods. They're all make-believe that offering that to idols doesn't change that meat. Eat it. What's wrong with you? They're, they're, they're kind of bullying them before they're ready. And, and we'll explain some of this as we goes along, but as we go along, but Paul is saying, be careful here because just because you know something, knowing doctrine isn't all there is to it. It's how to apply that doctrine in a beneficial way that matters. So knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so he said, he's telling some of these Corinthians, you think you know so much, but you're using it in a way that is dividing the church, that is hurting weaker brothers, and so forth. And so that's kind of the overall framework that we're going to be seeing this in chapter 8. But first, let's deal with the historical aspect here, because we in our society have no clue, would, would ordinarily without the Bible, have no clue as to what in the world the problem is here with this meat offered to idols. So let's just deal with that. In this thoroughly pagan culture, religion, of course, plays a very big part in everyday life. It always does, always will. You can pretend you don't believe in religion, but everybody believes and has some sort of faith uh, worldview. And in and even though this was thoroughly pagan, it was thoroughly pagan religions. And so religion played a very big part in everyday life. And for one thing, there was a God for just about every activity or need. Every, every, everything. So if you were going to travel, well, there was a God who was specifically designed to help the traveler. And so 
You had to appease him. You had to say, give a little sacrifice to this God if you're going to make it travel. If you're going to travel. Everything had a God. And so you, you, you begin to see what's going on here. In fact, you can kind of see where Roman Catholicism is, is borrowed from this paganism. Because what do you have in Roman Catholicism? You've got St. Christopher, right? The God. And you see those little images sometimes in front of a car where thinking that he's going to somehow protect them, right? And, and it's thoroughly pagan. But that's what was going on. And so you can imagine the amount of sacrifices to these gods for all the different reasons would be astounding. And, uh, and typically these sacrifices were animal sacrifices. And so once the sacrifice was made, the priest and the government and, you know, would get their share, the taxes, whatever this meat, but you'd have all this extra meat that would be taken down to the marketplace and sold. So you had all this great meat, some of the best meat available, had been offered and been used in these pagan ceremonies in one way or another. And the other part of this is that it was also assumed that demon spirits were present in pretty much everything. And one thing in common with many pagan religions is what we call spiritism. The idea that spirits dwell in everything. And so that object, if you carry it around with you, we took it home, you were taking a spirit, a, a demon of some sort, um, with you. And if you ate it, you were opening yourself up to the influence of that spirit. You were ingesting the spirit, as it were, in you. And so they thought that demons were constantly trying to get into people, and, to, and so food would be the easiest way, right? And so in Paul's day, all this was kind of assumed in the meat that was offered uh, at the uh, local uh, temple. They also thought that offering the meat to the gods at the same time was a way to remove the demons. And so you can see how some saints who were saved out of all that would, wouldn't necessarily understand that those, that meat actually doesn't have a demon in it. And that all this, uh, that these false gods weren't actually gods. And so it took a while for them, to, for all this to start to sink, they had to, to sink in, to, they had to grow and to understand these things. And so we can begin to see how some Christians who were saved out of this did not have, had not had the time to realize that this is not the way the world works. There are not demons and spirits and things that have to be removed that are, that if you carry them around with you, you bring them into your home, you're bringing a demon into your home. That's not the way it works. And yet there are, believe me, I know them personally, there are people, even people that I believe are Christians, who believe that's still the way it works. That if, that, that I know a guy who believe, I, I might have mentioned this to some of you, who believe that when cabbage patch dolls were made, that they were, uh, some ceremony went on because they were made over in some, you know, foreign country and demons were put in them and that if you bought them and you brought them in you were bringing a demon into your home and I argued with him Tom Blue in the face but no he knew it he had read a book and that was how it was and that's the way it went so it's it's a real problem even today but we'll uh, see it we make application later on so meat offered to idols then was taken to be the very best and you would imagine would be served to guests, would be served at parties, because that was all they had. There would be a lot at the marketplace, and perhaps, uh, you know, this is, that was the most available. And so a saint might attend a friend's wedding, or 
would no doubt, uh, would, if he did so, would know what kind of meat was being served there. Would, you know, he could at least assume it as much. And so some might then refuse to interact with lost people because they were afraid they were going to eat that meat. And so you can begin to see how this could start to affect one's service because you're so afraid of being fed meat offered to idols thinking that somehow it was going to maybe make you demon possessed or you were dishonoring the Lord or whatever. Uh, you, you weren't interacting with people. You weren't even necessarily going over to someone uh, in the church and eating with them or having them over to your church, to your house. But on the other hand, some saints knew better. And they would, uh, they would eat that meat because they knew that, you know, this is all, this is all this meat. And, but then you might have a friend from the church come over and they weren't, they didn't understand that and you would maybe force that meat on them and say, you know, make fun of them and say, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand that? And, it was causing problems. The more knowledgeable saint would realize that offering it to an idol didn't actually do anything to that meat and certainly didn't defile it and he knew that there were no demons in it and he was just happy to serve it because we know that we're not, we don't come under demon influence by eating a demon. It's by listening to Satan, by listening to the lives of Satan, right? Uh, by not applying the truth of God. That, that's those, that, as Paul says later on, we wage not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers about, uh, in, in the mind, the strongholds of the mind. It's, it's understanding truth that is our defense. Not whether we got a demon in us or not, because I don't believe Christians can have demons in, either you got the Holy Spirit in you, or you don't, or you, you maybe have a demon, but you can't have both. So if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about being demon-possessed. You need to worry about understanding the truth. But we'll, we'll not go in that direction today. But it's quite possible that the Gnostic tendencies that, that we've talked about before, the idea, you know, Gnosticism, it was you progressed in that religion by learning new mysteries, new knowledge. And the more knowledge you had, the higher up you were. And you would look down on those who didn't get it. They didn't have the knowledge you did of you know, these mysterious uh, little things that they would would, would uh, tell people. And so you haven't arrived. And, and so they begin to look down on these Christians like, you haven't arrived. You should know better, but you don't. And Paul seems to be addressing this by agreeing that as Christians, they all have biblical knowledge available, but knowing uh, isn't everything. Knowledge for knowledge's sake is rather useless, and in true Gnostic fashion, it would just puff one up in pride. And I think that because he starts off dealing with knowledge uh, as a way to indicate that of those who he's having problem with, just as he has previously in First Corinthians, there are these super apostles and these people who think they know everything that are causing most of the problems in the Corinthian church, the ones who think that they are the mature ones, and Paul's been kind of pointing out that you're not quite as mature as you think you are. And so you can see this here. This knowledge puffed us up, uh, he says in uh, verse uh, 2, or verse, at the end of verse 1. But love builds up. So yes, all of us have the truth, but we haven't all grasped it. We don't know how to apply it. And so he says in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, 
perhaps he doesn't know as much as he thinks he knows. Because look how you're using it. Knowledge is good and profitable and, and important and necessary. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't get Paul wrong. It, if you don't know, if you're not growing in the truth, in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Peter puts it, something's wrong. You can't serve the Lord. You can't be conformed to His image. You can't grow in faith and love if you aren't learning. That's why we have services every week, right? But, it's more important that you also, what you know, you know how to use it, that you're using it for the Lord's glory. If it's not producing Christ's likeness, then uh, it's knowledge without meaning. In fact, uh, and, uh, I kind of forgot about the review this today, but uh, that's okay. I think most of us know it Look at First Corinthians 13 too. Notice here the, the similarity between this text and our text today, where Paul says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so there you get, there's someone who understands it all, has knows it all, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, it's absolutely useless. It doesn't matter how much doctrine you know, if you don't have love, if you don't have a way to apply that and have it change you so that you can interact with people and serve the Lord, it's waste. So you see a very similar thing going on there. Those truly in the know, Paul says, are those who understand the gospel and are humbled by it. I think we'll see this here when we get to verse 3. Alright, so with that background, hopefully we begin to make sense of these first three verses. There were apparently some super spiritual members, I say that in air quotes as it were, who were telling the weaker brethren that abstaining from such meat was silly. And, and in a sense they were right. I think Paul is, is implying that. Yes, it, they don't have to. But this is where they are right now in, in their understanding. If, they're con- in their, if they ate that in their conscience, they think they are participating with demons and with paganism. So give them that. Let them grow. Don't 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 force them to do something, or pressure them to do something that is against their conscience. They were in essence saying, "You know better, so why do it?" But as we get through this chapter, we'll see that Paul is making the point that while what you say is true, it's a valid point. There are other things to consider before you encourage people to do that which is against their conscience, and in this case eat this meat offered to idols. And there might have been two, two sides in this, much like we have seen in previous chapters. One was saying that since there is no such thing, no such things as these demons and God, uh, then it doesn't really matter uh, if you eat this meat or not, because they don't exist. Obviously, saying a prayer over this meat doesn't change anything, right? Because nobody's listening. There's no God that's, that's listening to this to bless it or remove a demon or whatever. The other group takes a little bit different stance. To them, once something has been offered to a god or a demon or to Satan or whatever, then somehow it's been tainted and should be left alone. And you can, you can see that to some degree because uh, if they don't maybe understand exactly what's going on. As I, I talked about that 
uh, man uh, that I was telling you about before who believed that Cabbage Patch dogs had demons. He believed that every rock album uh, was first offered uh, to Satan by some cousin. So every rock album came with a demon as well. Well, I said, well, well what do you mean by rock album? And, and, and Michael Jackson and the pop and the carpenters and their uh, albums offered to Satan. I mean, he has no idea, but he heard somebody say all this. And, and, and he's, you start to think about it, it, it just, just it creates more questions to be answered. But, you know, but at the end of the day, everything has to be examined on its own merits. And so the first point here is that, uh, he makes is that knowledge with no certain use, uh, to, uh, knowledge that doesn't edify, that doesn't encourage brothers, and sisters in Christ only puffs one up. It's not actually doing any good. In other words, we try to be careful here that as we teach God's word, there's a purpose in doctrine. There's a purpose in doctrine. All doctrine is is the teachings of Scripture. We teach it with a with a purpose in mind that is to be conformed to Christ. I don't. I don't. I'm not near as concerned that everybody can. Get all their doctrine perfectly straight. It's important and good. But if it's not making you like Christ, you know, I'm failing. And we're all failing. So, having a lot of knowledge can make you look big. But love can cause you to grow to full stature in the Lord. And that's more than a cute saying, I believe. I think it's basically called point. As we just quoted there. And we'll see that, you know, in Romans 14, Paul speaks to the mature and, and talking about this very subject. He's, he's speaking to the mature, but he's centering on the weak. He says, look, guys, don't make big issues over these differences uh, because everybody's not at the same level in their understanding. We are here to build each other up to, 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 to be conformed to Christ, not to make big deal because somebody has a difference in their understanding of doctrine, as important as doctrine is. We notice in verse 7 that Paul says that some of these saints don't fully understand even the most basic truths about God. However, not he says, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is divided. See? They eat it, they think it's really being offered to an idol in, in some way that changes it. And because they don't get it, their their conscience is weak. When they eat that, they're offended. Don't be guilty of encouraging them. Now we begin to see why precedent to eat this meat is a real problem to them, even though at the same time the more knowledgeable knows that it's not actually doing anything to them. While they know there is no demon sitting on that meat, that the eating is not bringing that demon into you, opening you up to his influence, this brother would actually think that he is committing idolatry and giving himself to demons. And if that's the case, yes, you want to hopefully see him grow to his understanding but this is this is the overall application because obviously we're not going to be dealing with meat off of the demons as such. Although I've already given an example of how it still lingers. 
But the overall application is that this is where this thing is, this child of God, this one that is dear to Christ, this is where they are. Don't push on them more than they are able to handle. Maybe it's good for you to stop and think about where you are. Maybe you don't know as much as you do. And to some degree, this is what Paul says about these guys. You, you're right, technically, but you're taking that knowledge and you're doing things worse than them and their ignorance. You think about it, right? So be more concerned with that person's walk with Christ and expressing how much you know and how much he doesn't. And again, I think when we get ourselves so wrapped up in right and wrong doctrine, and we make that the test for everything, rather than, is that person serving Christ to the best of his knowledge? Right. And, and obviously, again, doctrine, sometimes we have to take big stands on doctrine, but not to the point where we're actually harming and not doing any good. So that's what we see in verse 1. In verse 2, we see... Here that we want to be careful to understand that Paul is quite clear that we are to grow in our understanding. He's not throwing knowledge out with you know maybe with the bathwater, not throwing it out altogether. He's, he's saying it's important, but he says knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. In verse two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He ought to know. But if you are puffed up in your knowledge and you're using it in a way to hurt people, your knowledge, you only know some, you know something, but you don't know as much as you should know. I think that should be pretty obvious. We can't obey what we do not know, and we certainly can't worship a God we don't understand, so knowledge is certainly extremely important, knowledge of the Word of God. But in this verse, he reminds us that no one knows everything and to be careful of going around and acting like you do. That you have all the answers. Because at some point, and that includes me as well, at some point, uh, it's going to be found out you don't know everything. So be willing, be humble in that because of that very thing. Uh, I thought these are some uh, good phrases that I think it's Maybe that we use today that kind of goes along with what Paul has been saying. Ignorance does not know what it does not know. Knowledge does not know and knows it. Right? And I think you know, an ignorant person thinks he knows more than he does, but someone who truly knows, you know, with wisdom, knows that he doesn't know everything, but he, and he gets it. He realizes that, whereas the ignorant person thinks he knows things, right? Someone said, some guys think they know it all. Smart guys know they don't. And then thirdly, again, all these really saying the same thing. Knowledge is passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. Right? You, you, I realize I don't know what I thought I knew. And when you get to that point, you're ready to learn. Right? Because when you think you've got it all figured out, you know, then, you know, you say, well, I, I'll i never change. I know this. That this you, you will never change. Well, you cease to be a student. And now the only thing left for you is to be a teacher. And, of course, anyone who gets in that position, me included, uh, is, is going to be uh, more harmful than good before it's all over with. So just some things to keep in mind. I think this is kind of what Paul is saying here. And then thirdly, as we come to verse 3, 
while knowledge is good and necessary in its place, our first concern is whether we love God and He knows us in a saving way. Because after all, what we should be concerned about is that everybody has a right relationship with God, not in expressing how smart we are or how ignorant you are or how silly you are or something like that. You completely missed the point. There is only one real God. And having peace with him and encouraging others to know him should be our first priority. And our first priority should not be going around fixing everybody else's problems, especially just to make yourself look good. We are to go around encouraging each other, exhorting each other, teaching, sometimes rebuking. But it should always leave that person better off for it. Not just beaten down. And that's when the test here is in my interaction with somebody, somebody that I perhaps think is weaker than me in some way, and it's always dangerous to be thinking like that strongly. But if, if in my interaction with them, I leave them worse off than they were, then I have failed, right? So how does all this apply to Christian freedom? Because let's, let's just make this applicable to us in everyday life. This subject is probably one of the most divisive that the church has ever dealt with throughout its history, Christian freedom. Being able to say, you know what, uh, we, everybody doesn't have to look just like me, and I'm okay with that. And, and ha- having been raised in fundamentalism, that was something that I had to learn. And I didn't learn it really until I got out of fundamentalism, but, but because that's the fundamentalist, one of their primary problems, is that they have all the answers, and if you don't hold to my views, then I, uh, you're probably not saved, or I won't have anything to do with you. It's just complete judgmentalism. I don't want to be like that. There have always been and always will be issues that we must deal with in which the Bible does not give us some specifics, and Christians are going to differ on the solution. I'll just give you a short list. Drinking, smoking, hard playing, makeup, dancing, Sunday sports, styles of music, going to theaters. You know, those, those are some of the typical ones. And there's a reason why those are sometimes, uh, you know, divisive or have different views. It's because all of those can, as, as most things can, all of those things can be uh, used in a simple way. There's no question about that, right? And so... You have these uh, divisions because of that. Because they are, to some degree, controversial. There is a line that can be crossed where those things, and those are just examples, where someone can take something that can be okay and cross the line and it becomes sinful. I think dancing things, I'll just give you an example. You know, dancing used to be, for, for most Christians, that was just, you just didn't do it, right? Well, you know, for Today, that, that's changed quite a bit. You know, a lot of Christians dance. And, and, and I understand not all dancing, I don't think, is sinful. I, I think if you want to do square dancing, there's ballroom dancing, which I don't know why they want to do that. But whatever. Uh, you know, so I'm not saying dancing is wrong, but when you think about modern dance, dancing can be extremely suggestive. It can have people out there doing things that are, uh, explicitly evil. 
ungodly. And if you can't discern between the differences there, then I would just stay away from all of it. So, so you see, so you've got these areas, you've got to think. It, it's not, I don't think it's helpful for anybody to stand up and say that all dancing is wrong. And, and, just, and again, you can apply this to anything. I don't think, and it, and it, I don't think it's helpful. What I would like to see is people who say, you know what? When I get ready to think about whether this is something I want to do or not, I want to think about this relationship to what the Bible tells me to how I am to live and who I am as a pastor of Jesus Christ. Is this something I can do with a clear conscience? And if you can do that, then I'm happy to let you go and do whatever you want to do. Because you're the Lord's problem anyway. I mean that in a good sense, you know, because we all going to have to answer to him. But divisions and harm happen when because of our pride, we feel like our understanding of standards are correct and they're best. And so if you don't hold to my standards, you are in error. Now, you might, you might be in error. But my attitude is to understand that, you know what? Uh, I've got my, I've got to answer to the Lord for what I do. You have to do, you don't have to answer to me. And I might be wrong. You know, we, I have, these are my standards. And I, I've got to always be, consider them in the light of God's word. All of us do things that we probably should not do because none of us have perfect understanding, perfect maturity. And so we have to let the Lord take care of each other and worry about our own problems. And that's usually the problem. When someone becomes judgmental, they tend to not worry about their own problems and their own growth. It's not worrying about somebody else's. Well, look, you, God gave you kids. If you have kids, you worry about them. Everybody else is not your child to worry about what they do in, in a lot of cases. And so just like in our text, there are many times we have two, two extremes in all this. And then everything in, the, in between sometimes. We often refer to these two extremes as either antinomian or legalist. The antinomian basically thinks everything's okay. Nothing's in black and white. Um, you know, that, that I can do whatever I want to do. I'm free in Christ. Christ has forgiven my sins. And I, and that's kind of the extreme form, obviously. But, and I, and so I'll just do what I want to do. Sin, as Paul had to deal with this in Romans 5 and 6. Then all you want to, so that God's got to keep forgiving you. The grace of God will abound because He's got to keep forgiving you. You know, whatever the reasons are. And so, with that mentality, then, like another, with the dancing or, or makeup, there's no limit. There's no, well, maybe this is going too far. No. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. That's the antinomian. The other group tends to take the easy way out, and I think it is the book that gets the easy way out, and just declare everything is sinful. You don't have to worry about it, you know. It's all wrong. All that, that list that I, I did and other things too. And that's just, it's the easy way out, but it doesn't solve anything because first of all, it's not necessarily all wrong, and all you do is cause more divisions. So it doesn't solve anything. Often people forget that the Bible doesn't address every issue and does give us principles to figure some of these things out for ourselves. And that's good, conducive to godliness, to growing. Because, as we've said before, the problem with 
list. And this is wrong, this is right, take my word for it, you ain't gonna think about it. Is that as soon as you make lists, we no longer, we can stop thinking. We can stop examining ourselves. This wrong is wrong. I don't want to think about it more. That's right. I can do that. I don't, and it might be wrong. You don't know because you're, because somebody else has decided what godliness is. And it, it becomes a outward thing rather than an inward thing. So there's just all sorts of problems with that. And so Paul is saying to be careful in these matters because we are here to help each other to worship God, not necessarily to settle matters for everybody, especially in areas that the Bible does not address in a black and white fashion. Too often we can be impressed by someone because they have written a book, they, they know a lot about something, they verbalize very well, and we let them do the thinking for us. That always hurts me, and I'm not saying I haven't ever been guilty of it. But I'm dealing with somebody, and they've read a book, and so now they have it's all settled for them. Well, you know, I've read a lot of books too, and that, you know, if, it, if it's been helpful for you, great. But there are always two sides to every, there are multiple sides to every issue. So we don't want all this to be in our head, but not in our heart. So I gotta bring this to a close here, but Deuteronomy 6 5, notice here, God, nothing in, in one sense has ever changed, because God says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your might. And God always was concerned that the law, his law would be inside of them. They loved and wanted to obey him, not merely outward actions, right? So we always have to be careful of setting up exterior rules at the expense of our heart. And then he says, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. So there you see it. Well, what, what some of these pious Jews did was to write these words out because later on he also talks about how that they shall be, uh, you shall hang them around your head and forehead. You shall uh, hang them around your neck and also and all this. And so they literally did that. They wrote them out put a piece of paper in a pouch, hung them over their uh, foreheads so they hung down right here so everybody could see how holy they were. They were called phylacteries. And I'm, I'm obeying God. And they completely missed the point. No, the point isn't that you outwardly display those on your body, but that that's how you are inside. Like they reflect an inner person. So we don't want to do that. And when we become legalistic, it's very easy for us to fall into those uh, patterns. We sometimes wear a cross around our neck. And, you know, if you want to wear a cross around your neck, I'm not saying anything about that. But that is not Christianity. If, that, if you want to say that that lets people know what I believe, great. But, but remember, Christ said that the cross is something you are to die daily. Take up your cross and die daily. The cross is a, a reminder that we are not our own, that we have been crucified with Christ. And if you aren't living like that, Wearing a cross around your neck is a hypocritical waste of time, right? If it's not an inward reality. So knowledge we know is power, but it can be a basis for intimidation and influence, and it can coerce people to do things that they don't yet understand. But, Paul says, love won't do that. It will figure out how to teach, but will do so at their pace, 
at the Lord's pace, and it will be patient and loving in the meantime. And it doesn't assume, love doesn't assume that I know everything. Because Christianity isn't just about how much you know, but how well you practice what you know. And so love sets a limit on our liberty. We'll get into this more, of course, next week, where, where Paul could go on and say, because all this is true, there might be times when you are with this person that you don't exercise some of their liberty, but instead you uh, live as they do, you eat what they're eating when you're with them, so as not to offend them. And he'll talk about that next uh, chapter, but he says, I could, I, as an apostle, have the right to be paid by my churches and to have a wife, and I have given both of those up because I feel like it would do more harm in my case than it did, right? And so there would be a great example of it. <clears throat> so we don't want, you might say that Christianity is like uh, walking a thin line with a gully on both sides. You can, uh, you can fall into a trap of legalism where everything turns into rules and outward regulations. And that becomes the focus rather than the heart. Or you can fall off in the goalie where uh, a, license, a license where you can do anything. And neither one of those address the heart. And that's the problem. So Christian freedom is neither of those. It is discovering the liberating power of being placed in bondage to Jesus Christ. Which in turn will release us to love one another. So a lot of paradoxes. We have more to say about this, but perhaps one test we can give ourselves as we close is whether we fall into error, whether we fall into error in this chapter, this test is to judge whether your brothers or sisters like being around you in a sense. And what I mean by that is do you encourage them in the things of the Lord in a loving way or do they know that when they're with you, at some point you're going to tell them what they're doing wrong. You know, in that sense, are we pleasant to be around or are we the police? And, 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 and I think we all know Christians who struggle sometimes wanting to be the police. If you find that most of your thoughts and your speech and your interaction with people is, is being critical in some way, you probably need to step back and take a breath and ask the Lord to give you love and patience towards each other. What we don't want, and I, I constantly remind myself of this in my ministry, is I don't want, I want to be a ministry. I don't want my preaching to be that about issues. All the and some people, it, it's always about issues. This issue, that issue. This doctrine, that doctrine. And while there's a place for issues, not everything has to be an issue. And it's, it's about loving the Lord and about serving the Lord. And we just got to sometimes step back. Take a breath. God does not need us to go around pointing out everybody else's fault. There are times, and of course, that's going to have to happen. But as a rule, that's the, that's the exception, not the rule. And so, let me just close here by saying, what does verse three mean? Because it's kind of a difficult verse, right? But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You know, that, that's not the easy one to, to grasp. But I think what he's saying there, he's comparing. What is important to know versus what they have been stressing. 
In other words, true knowledge knows God and loves God. And it is this kind of person that God knows and loves. So he's, he's, he's balancing this out. He's reminding them where they should be going. Nothing trumps that. Certainly not being an unfeeling or careless person with your brothers and sisters in Christ, acting like you know more than them, trying to encourage them to do something they're not comfortable doing. You might know more facts, but you don't know how to use those facts. You actually uh, don't know what you think you know, and you show yourself to be the weaker brother. And so being right on an issue or a doctrine doesn't make you more godly, doesn't make you more mature. And again, it's hard for us sometimes to remember this. Just because you might know most of the Bible, a lot of the Bible, know more than somebody else, and I constantly think about this, doesn't mean that somebody else who doesn't know as much as you isn't a more godly person than you. They love, their, their love for Christ is stronger. It affects them better. It's molding them into Christ's likeness. And you might know more about the Bible, but you're struggling to be where they are. So understand how to test whether you're mature or not is not just how much you know, but is that knowledge making you more like the Lord Jesus Christ? I think if we just stay there, we'll guard ourselves from the problem for sure. Well, any questions, comments before?